0: You're listening to Masters of Digital Transformation, brought to you by AIM 10x and hosted by Tony Saldana.
1: Welcome to Masters of Digital Transformation, the podcast that's been designed for business leaders to learn from the masters who devoted their careers to disrupt their industries. My name is Tony Saldana. Each episode, we bring you industry war stories with insights into some of the top challenges around digital transformation, especially in planning. And our goal as always is to equip you with the best practical information to keep yourself ahead of the competition. And along those lines, I am really pumped today because I have two gentlemen that I have been looking forward to speaking for a long time. Das Das Gupta and Raghav Ranganathan gentlemen welcome to the show
0: thank you glad to be here great to be here
1: all right now let me start with you first Das as an early member of i2 technologies whose founder you may remember from our last episode Sanjeev Sidhu Das has worked in strategy and operations and EY and McKinsey and then switched to the driver's seat as head of North America's customer experience in uh, Amazon Das has been listed as one of the top 100 innovators in data science and analytics, whose leadership at Viacom won them Automation of the Year Award by visionary leadership and is currently leading advanced analytics, data operations, and digital advertising portfolios for uh, a company that I remember well from Procter & Gamble, uh, Saatchi & Saatchi. Um, You know, that's, that's quite an impressive career. And if that wasn't enough, we have Raghav as well, who's currently Senior Vice President at O9 Solutions, leading their strategy and operations practice. This is just to provide you guys, our listeners, with some very exciting things that we have here to talk about. So without any further ado, let's jump in. Um, Das, I'm going to start with you. How have you gotten from your early days outside of school to where you are today?
2: Well, thank you for asking that question, Tony, quite a, quite a journey that I've had. I will go back to my early days to kind of set the stage where I started from. Born and raised in an, in an academic family, I had to go through my degrees in a row, bachelor's and master's and PhD. And, and then I got into I2 technologies where I realized that all the formulations that I was doing in math, they had to be translated into a language, which is that of technology. And then i was in the pre-sales group where i was going and doing demos of how the product works without ever having seen a manufacturing line and then when i I went to the strategic opportunity assessment or soa group Uh where i was going and telling the c-suite why they should be investing in i2 portfolio without really having run a business And then the journey really thus begun, but for the five years in Dallas, those were pretty much shaping my technology-oriented understanding of the supply chain problem and its business-oriented application and solutions, again, without having done that business, without having been in the line. And it has been, in my mind, as I look back in retrospective, was a theoretical journey then you know i went to partnership roles in ernst and young where i was in the strategy and operations practice and then i got hired by mckinsey to be in the operations practice and i was going and you know helping companies come up with global supply chain plans global operations plans and how they should be doing planning and how they should be doing replanning At this time, I got a call from Amazon to actually come and run North America for Amazon customer experience, which in in short is called ACES. The ACES team comprises of three groups. They're called Think, Teach, and Deliver. Uh The Think team consists of data scientists, advanced analytics, technologists. The TEACH team consists of Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belts Mm -hmm. and the Delivered team is a dotted relationship with about 120 general managers of Amazon's fulfillment centers that are called FCs. Fantastic role, I took the opportunity on and the first day I showed up there, my boss said, now it's time to check your ego out of the door and go to the floor. He said, put your warehouse jacket on, put your gloves on and go pick pack, ship, for three months in the road, you will be actually training with people who have the lowest minimum wage that are going to be teaching you how supply chain works.
1: Now, now, w- wait a second. Three months. So this isn't onboarding as in, hey, go get trained for a couple of days. No. It is you actually do the work. You become Absolutely. somebody on the floor. That is fascinating.
2: Yep, absolutely. So I did initially think that this was just sort of an onboarding, but then I realized that I was supposed to show up on time. And there is a process called fast start which means that the moment you're supposed to show up and the moment you are supposed to go and start your picking or packing or shipping function, whichever area that you've been allocated to must be less than 90 seconds. So that is measured and observed. And then the first thing I realized is that My hand-eye coordination is not even close to my colleagues. My (laughs) colleagues who were literally picking and packing and shipping. And then they were having a, you know, they were having a smile. They would come over and they would say, hey, let me show you how to do that. And, And then they said, observe what I'm doing. He said, you scan the item, then you scan the tote, and then you scan the shelf, and then you scan your trolley these four scans, if you don't do that, data is not going to be made. We are making a digital twin here. Yeah. So that was my introduction after 18 years of Supply chain management and supply chain planning, and helping companies transform their processes and roll out SNOP processes worldwide for Microsoft, Xbox. Yeah. I realized that I did not know the first thing about supply chain management, and my learning began.
1: That gets me to one of the first major lessons that I would love for you to expound upon, which is data has to be created data, the digital twin is not something in an Excel spreadsheet or in, in, in a database somewhere there. If you actually don't generate data, and if it doesn't mimic reality, then mm-hmm. all you have are meaningless bits and bytes. Exactly. So thus, I want to talk to you a little more about this digital twin and the fact that data has to be created. How was that different from the previous 18 years where, of course, you did a lot of work with data and analytics, but without having to even think about the fact that if you don't create data, it doesn't exist.
2: Correct. It was wildly different because this is the first time I was really looking at how things work in a, in a really granular basis and to be able to connect what data means in real life with my own eyes and hands and mapping it to the digital world. So one of the good best things about Amazon is that it has its own homegrown solutions and you know IT systems that mm-hmm. is not borrowed from anyone, but it's built to actually make sure that you have visibility to each ASIN, as they call it, yeah. which stands for Amazon Stock Identification Number, which mm-hmm. is equivalent to an SKU. But it literally knows where in the entire sprawling universe of Amazon an item is at any point of time, right from the beginning of the process where a shipper or a seller is sending something to us. They're given specific instructions on how they should be actually using barcoding and codifying them in the Mm -hmm. system so that it starts its journey from shipping. Then it's received in our inbound. And there is a Mm -hmm. thorough process where people are supposed to be opening the boxes, cutting them off taking each item scanning it and the system says okay ready to go if not it you have to put it aside on problem solving because someone has to go and find where that item came from and where it's going and then actually fix the system so it's not just data making but making sure that you have multiple checkpoints for data accuracy because as we all know tony garbage in garbage out absolutely absolutely
1: absolutely You know, that that is so fundamental to the world that we're starting to get into now, which is this isn't about some process to be followed, MRP2 for planning. This is all about reflecting reality. And and therefore, one of the things I love about the work that you are doing, and and, and Raghav, I'm going to call on you to share how you support this concept of a digital twin at O9, You've had the occasion to to actually work with many companies. How then you translate some of this into actual product reality?
0: I always like to you know begin my dialogue, if you will, by acknowledging the humility that we need to keep at the back of our minds when we're working with those who are actually running businesses. Yeah. So I always remember the first conversation I had with a planner when I started my career was, hey, Raghav if the one thing you do for me is to make sure I have a five-day week so that I'm not working seven days a week collecting all of this data to make decisions, you've helped me. Uh, So I always remember what she said to me every time I work with a client and uh, absolutely right. Data is created and one has to be aware of the fact that data, all data, has a life cycle to it. It lives through a series of stages and the life cycle of data is a lot more than simply saying, I'm gonna take snapshots, right? Yeah. That's okay, that's important. It's good to have snapshots at a cadence, but there is also the concept of a data life cycle that you go through, which is what Das was talking about. Uh, the online product journey, as you know, has been influenced by being able to represent the entire data structures that are needed to be represented as mm-hmm. they are being created so they can be used for planning and insights ultimately mm-hmm. to help make decisions. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the enterprise knowledge graph has the ability to capture this information and also bring out of that the knowledge of the fact that this data goes through its lifecycle. Mm-hmm. So holding that information is sort of a precursor to the workflows we try to push mm-hmm. the planners and the decision makers through. So. Mm-hmm. Fundamental to how we thought through the, the ethos of our product strategy is the ability to have this representation, if you will, of data, the life cycle of the data before we even talk about workflows. That's,
1: that's, that's fabulous because this isn't about let's just build a workflow, you know, just, let's just build databases. It is about, hey, you know, let's figure out how to build in the flexibility to reflect reality. Thus switching back to you, data management, analytics, and and, and we could probably spend a month there, but I continue to be fascinated by the management philosophy of data, as well as decision-making around data. And since you've had the opportunity to work at one of the most intriguing companies in the world, I have to ask you this. At Amazon, how is decision-making done? What role does data play?
2: Well, I'll I'll tell you a story then. So uh, back in 2015, Amazon was seeing a very large number of returns for its heavy and bulky equipment, particularly large screen television sets. By large, I mean 46 inches or bigger. There was about 5.3% of those returns marked as defective or damaged. Uh So sometimes what happens is an irate customer figures out Jeff Bezos' email address, and sends an email saying that I've had a bad customer experience. And this is exactly what's going on. This is the second time I ordered a large screen television, and both times it turned out to be defective or damaged. And Jeff has a way of flipping this email to his direct reports, who flipped that email to their direct reports with a question mark. And the easiest way to get fired in Amazon is to say, oh, I'm taking care of this, no worries. The thing that you need to do is literally spend the next few days or weeks or however long it takes to uncover the root causes of that problem with Uh data. Now, as you referred to the Amazon pre-reading and writing, the report needs to be written in complete sentences in a Word document. Every three sentences must have numbers in it Uh that will substantiate any claim. Uh And in any meeting, there is no PowerPoints allowed because PowerPoint is considered to be fluff. You're supposed to have read that six page paper for the first 20 minutes and then the remaining 40 minutes would be a discussion and a decision would be made after that. Even if you're asking for an $80 million investment, the check would be approved right there on the spot. So what I did, I had to go into the warehouses and, you know, fulfillment centers, FCs, heavy and bulky ones, take lots of pictures, Uh start to ask questions, do a lot of diligence, and we found that there were seven root causes. We found that every time a television was traveling more than 500 miles, the probability of it getting defective or damaged was exponentially increasing. We found out that many times inbound operations did not really notice that a television was being delivered that was already defective or damaged. Found out that if television falls from a height of 12 or more feet, then it has a high probability of defective and damaged. So we actually did a convention where we brought in Samsung and. Sony and Vizio and all these television manufacturers. And we said, drop your television from that top.
1: Oh, you're kidding me.
2: And we will take (laughs) three-dimensional images of it on how it breaks and how far does it need to fall to break. And we found how the the television should be standing erect and not slanted. We found out how the forklift operators should be actually making sure that they're holding the televisions by the sides and not on their faces. For each of these root causes, we observed the instances. We counted those instances. We did a long relative frequency calculation on that. We developed countermeasures and our Six Sigma Master Black Bells literally took that process and then went and rolled out in each and every fulfillment center. And every operator who was shipping televisions were supposed to take a picture of that truck departing that dock, showing exactly how they are loaded in a Kindle and uploaded in cloud. And then we could see exactly how we are shipping it. The results In three months, we brought it down to 1.8% from 5.3, which roughly accounted to $80 million of savings.
1: Oh my God.
2: And that is where the rubber hits the road and data science works with supply chain team and data digital twins and all of that comes together in reality.
1: That is an incredibly fascinating story, Das, because there is no better illustration of attention to detail, and also how to turn data into decisions. I, I, I worked on Procter & Gamble for, you know, a, a few decades. And of course, we have manufacturing planning systems and, and manufacturing execution systems. But, you know, this kind of incident then raises the question, which is, what is the upstream stuff that needs to be taken care of before you actually get improvements into your planning cycle. In other words, even going from a, a, a defect rate of 5.8 to you know, one point something, most planning and most execution systems will basically give you data that already exists somewhere in their MES systems and say, do root cause. And then it goes on to some person's desk to do that, right? But the experimentation that you just talked about, normal systems don't have the ability to do that. So how do you then Raghav and and how do O9 think in terms of allowing that flexibility for some of that upstream experimentation to be linked into the system?
0: And Great question, Tony. as you said, you know there is the concept of data creation, and then that essentially finds its way into the in the O9KST enterprise knowledge graph. Now, one of the things that we're very aware of is that it's not always true that all data is available at the level of detail that we need to make some of these deep root-causing uh, related discussions. So the way we think of this is, okay, let's make sure that we have the data that is available that we can agree is correct and accurate. So you know that from a data governance perspective, we have this amount of data and we make sure that everyone agrees that this is the real version of the truth, if you will, for what is acknowledged to be correct. Now you can actually score parts of your data stream as suspect, right? Where you're going to go and say that, hey, I have these pieces of data that is coming through an approximation. I have these pieces of data that's coming with very high latency, so I'm not necessarily sure if it is sufficiently accurate to capture the information. Now, the moment you actually know that there is this piece of yield that you want to go and look at to try and see how you can do better, you can actually kick off the workflow in the online platform itself saying that, hey, I want to scrutinize why, the yield out of these fulfillment centers, for example, are trending in this particular direction. uh, And yields out of these fulfillment centers are trending in a different direction. So as soon as you're able to flag that, the conversation then allows you to discover pieces of information saying that, hey, you know, the amount of transit that these products took coming to those fulfillment centers exceeded certain parameters of distribution. So you can drive a workflow up till the point where you realize, okay, the data has taken me only so far yeah. and now you need to have that workflow where you're talking about okay bring the suppliers into the conversation yeah. so getting to the point where the data will tell you that hey you know the the, the transit of greater than so many miles is going to increase the likelihood of breakage uh, and so on and so forth is going to get you to some amount of the root causing that that's brilliant and and that is also
1: the difference between an enterprise knowledge graph and a set of databases. And, and that is the critical difference to the operations of a company and the continuous improvement. Um, there's another aspect of Amazon that absolutely fascinates everybody, which is the digital literacy. And I heard a few months ago that Amazon is going to invest $700 million, I think, in improving the digital literacy of their organization. And, and my first reaction was, what are you talking about? I mean, you uh, know, you, you have an organization that is the envy in terms of digital literacy of everybody in the world. But that is just indicative of a you know, continuous drive for perfection, even in the digital literacy field. So could you share with me, you know especially you going in from a data and analytics standpoint, what such an organization thinks and feels and how do they expect digital literacy to be almost like a given within the organization
2: very good question uh, amazon is a digitally born native yeah right it started out as a digital platform yeah. Yeah. now having said that they had to make sure that everything that's physical is also converted to digital so that process i already described now comes the literacy part to your question so Understand that every time a new Amazonian is hired, they are not only taken through that process of understanding how it works in the fulfillment world, but also every single person is given some training in digital literacy, including the ACES team that I ran. Yeah. We developed a methodology called a mm-hmm. uh, Continuous Improvement Cycle, CIC. Mm-hmm. which literally had the Lean Six Sigma principles of define, measure, analyze, improve, and control that we had our own version of. And the operators in lines, and by the way, let me also give you a little bit of color here. Area managers, managers, senior managers on the floor wearing a gloves, in you know, a pair of gloves and a jacket may fool you, but many of them are from Harvard or MIT with an MBA or master's or PhD in computer science. Oh they are just going through <laughs> the process. And they're literally learning and they're also running the line. And then they may take a, a role back into Seattle in the headquarters. So that literacy now will be, you know, spread by them to the workers on on there so let's say problem solving right yeah. problem solving is a fundamental dna to amazon yeah. and a, a problem solver in that that case is defined as someone who could understand data yeah. see what it says on the screen be able to map it in a picture into yeah. what's going on on the floor yeah. then go look for it wow. so you see this is taking us from you know math to the atomic world and vice versa, from the atomic world of every single digital twin traveling out there back into mathematical processes where we are hitting the books again and doing our calculations and coming up with, you know, additional ideas that we should try and then make it really happen. So without data literacy, no one in Amazon is going to be able to survive because that is, you know, key to your understanding of how, end-to-end processes and supply chain works.
0: Tony, if I may add, uh, data literacy, without doubt, elevates the knowledge of the entire ecosystem that is running the business, right? Having the ability to recognize that there is something happening that needs to be captured is something that you train. And the data literacy that you're talking about also drives the discussion to the earlier example that you were talking about, saying that there are certain corners of a television screen that are more susceptible to breaking and so on. So the representation of the digital twin, which has all of these pieces of data, and lends itself very well to network rebalancing and optimization solves. But the thing that we also are pushing and seeing a lot of adoption and improvement is bringing in unstructured information, even mm. if it might be a picture mm. uh, that someone on the line or someone who is delivering a box has observed or has noted. It could be anything from, hey, I'm taking this picture that every time I drive this amount, I find that all of my boxes are keeled over and now I'm seeing you know, uh, breakages. Any piece of data like that can be put in and contextualized saying that on this delivery route, on this product, mm. I observed so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed a picture mm-hmm. that can actually be stored and reposed, which will allow you to take that one more step closer to realizing that you need to drive this cross-functional improvement program where you need to invite your vendors and your partners in and so on and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. And that, that framework is absolutely critical because this is really where I think the ability to look across the enterprise and beyond. I mean, you know, you talked about yes. inviting suppliers and customers to be part of the the knowledge graph, and, and then allow them to give you the information and the, the knowledge that you need to, to optimize the whole. That is what is so exciting about this era in which we live. And, and Das and, and, and Raghav, you guys are playing some major roles in there. And I want to use that as a pivot to move to a little more personal understanding of, of both you gentlemen. I, I'm going to ask one more question of each of you. Um, actually, I'm going to start with you, Raga, first, if you don't mind. You know, for enterprises or for professionals that work in the extended planning ecosystem area, based on your life lessons and your work, what would be one or two lessons that you would like to share with them?
0: Um, always be uh, humble as I start thinking through this. And uh, make sure the data is there, right? Yeah. So you need to make sure the data is really coming from someplace that created the data as opposed to someone who is approximating data. So yeah. uh, understand the data ethos, if you will, yeah. so that you can decide uh, how you're going to step forward. Even if you say, hey, it's just going to be a data feed coming from this ERP, it's important to understand what the ethos of that data really is because you're making decisions based on that. And the second aspect of this is take pause to understand differing and competing points of view if they are going to make arguments challenging the ethos of the data itself. So make sure that you, one, understand the ethos of data and also make sure that if people are misaligned, the misalignment is not coming because they're challenging the snapshot of data itself.
1: I mean, both of those are very profound, but the second of those, I think, is increasingly important because when people go on the defense, the first tendency is to question the data. And so there is also a tendency to then get into the game of saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's my data versus your data. But Drago, what you're saying is that it could just be different slices of data and and, and putting all of that together is very profound. And so thank you for sharing that. Um, Das, how about you?
2: I mean, it's hard to add on top of how beautifully Raghav just articulated it, but let's also understand that we are talking about industries that already are in data, such as manufacturing or yes, financial yes. services, yes. You know, those are CPG, retail, et cetera. When you come to the advertising world, it's a creative world, yes. right? And that's why I took the challenge of what can I do here with data? It is fascinating to see that, you know, strategists or creative folks, particularly creative folks, they're all embracing data and calling it data at the center. And we sometimes get into these discussions on what does it really mean? Does data drive it or does data inform it? So again, going back to Raghav's point on, you know, staying humble, my coaching back to my peers is always that, Data is not driving, data is informing. Data informed creative means you're building a story that already is informed with what the eventual audience wants to see. And we are collecting that information for you. We are doing clustering and segmentation and you don't need to know all those terms, but we are giving you some insights that you could use. So staying humble, learning and listening, particularly two opposing points of view Someone might say, you know, what's data got to do with it? I will have this creative moment. <laughs> How about if you knew that this person liked red more than green? Yeah. Would you do something different, right? Would you use a red color? Oh yeah, I would. Well, that's data that's redefining it. what we call data. And, and that's my key learning that be open to understanding what data means really, you know? Oh my
1: God. That, that is fabulous. Hey, look, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for joining me here today. Das, it's been thank an absolute you. pleasure to spend this time with you. Raghav, likewise, I, I think you've you've done just so much, not just for the industry, but you know, just in terms of the insights that you've shared today have been fabulous. For our listeners out there, please don't just implement planning. Reinvent it. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening to Masters of Digital Transformation. For more information, be sure to check out www.09solutions.com slash aim10x.